please let yourself come back in and find a way to sit that's settled and at ease. This evening, as I reflected on what to speak about, um, I was aware that next week, um, Monday falls on July 2nd, I believe, near the 4th of July. Sometimes I'd like to give a talk about Independence Day around that time. <laughs> um, but it turns out that next week we're having the visit of a famous meditation master from the forest monasteries of northern Thailand, Ajahn Thien, who I've not met, but um, I'm appreciating that he's going to come and <coughs> teach, visit here. Um, and so I thought, well, I'll, I'll talk about Independence Day today instead. <laughs> we're getting close, why not? Um, and I see this talk um, as a kind of conversation that some of us have been having now over the past uh, few months on Monday night on occasion that I might call the breathing in and out series. <laughs> that is to say the breathing in and quieting the mind and finding the center and then breathing out and extending that meditative understanding into the world at large. And it's partly a reflection, we'll see how it goes tonight, <coughs> a reflection on the fact that we live in what seem to be difficult, if not tumultuous times globally, politically, environmentally. At least those kinds of concerns are very much visible to us when we run paying attention. Um, and then we come to this national holiday um, next week, July 4th, to celebrate the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events it becomes necessary for one people to dissolve the political bands which have connected them to one another, etc., as you learned in grade school, or you may have learned. And I want to reflect on in independence um, from the perspective of meditation and the Buddhist teaching. Um, because if we celebrate in the outer way a war, a declaration of independence and then a war of independence, um, we can also see the longing in people over the ages for the same kind of independence and all the different wars, the French Revolution and the wars for independence in Spain and Algeria and Cuba and among the Basques and currently the Kurds and the Palestinians and what a what a deep longing it is repeated again and again among human beings 
to find freedom, the people of Burma who are engaged in this. But what is freedom? Freedom from Britain? <laughs> freedom from our parents, you know, from someone controlling us? Freedom from our conquerors? But teaching together with a uh, wonderful poet, Luis Rodriguez, um, who writes about the conquistadors and the native <coughs> in North America. And he, in, in his poems, he says, in my blood, in my veins, are the conquered and the conquered. You know, the conquerors, the conquistadors, and those who are conquered. It's in me. How can I separate myself? We are them. Now, it's useful, just as a little aside, to note which revolutions we tend to have supported or helped um, politically from this country. And um, more often, they tend to be in those that are in our own economic interests. But that's a little aside. <laughs> <laughs> but what is freedom? You know, if it's not from Britain or colonial powers or our parents, freedom from other people's influence, freedom from difficulty, freedom from pain. What is independence? Suppose we reflect a bit and don't take just the kind of revolution, you know, cowboy view of it, uh, of independence, but look more deeply at what does independence mean? Does it mean the freedom to have more, buy more, sell what we want, have 500 channels? You know, to do as we please, to sell arms to the whole world. America is the largest supplier of weapons on the face of the earth. Um, and then we worry about not being safe. You know, some of the disjunct list. Um, the tyranny of choice, that you can go into the grocery store and there's, you know, a hundred kinds of beer and fifty kinds of mustard. And now, as Rita Mae Brown says, in America, the word revolution is used to sell pantyhose. <laughs> I mean, I don't want to trivialize it, but there's a way in which we can get put to sleep. Um, and yes, there's real need for outer revolutions, if you will, in the face of injustice and racism and oppression that exists still so much in the world. And yet as we sit quietly, the wisdom in us, the one who knows deeply, can sense that there is a, another deep meaning of independence. Thoreau put it this way, he said, many men go fishing for the whole of their lives without realizing that it's not fish thereafter. <laughs> it's a really beautiful thing. Many men go fishing for the whole of their lives without realizing that it's not fish that they're after. And there is something that we long for and that we know that's possible. And in the invitation of meditation, the practice of mindfulness and awareness and presence and compassion, we're invited to discover a deep independence of the heart. What is called the abode of the awakened ones, the abode of the Buddhas, the abode of our own Buddha nature. The Buddha, in his teachings, saw the changing conditions of life, which we all experience, and found a still center 
in the midst of them all. So this passage from Thich Nhat Hanh that I've read so often, when the crowded Vietnamese refugee boats met with storms or pirates, if everyone panicked, all would be lost. But if even one person on the boat remained calm and centered, it was enough. They showed the way for everyone to survive. And so one of the movements of independence, if you will, <coughs> is to find this center to discover what T.S. Eliot called the still point of the turning world. And we do meditation, not in order to do meditation and become a good meditator. I'm saying spare your friends and family that. <laughs> <laughs> but to learn somehow, and cellularly, bodily feeling all of the aspects of our life, how it is to be independent and awake and free in the midst of the changing circumstances. So I read this a few weeks ago, a message recently from a friend who's dying of prostate cancer. He said, my days are short, and as I grow weaker, I experience so much gratitude for my meditation. Not only the joy and ease it brought, but the hard parts. For every bored and restless sitting, and every fearful fantasy, and every pain and ache I sat through, and every itch I didn't scratch, was training for kindness, a training for the muscle of bearing witness, for the trusting spirit that now carries me to my death. <clears throat> and so there is a... <clears throat> so there is a an invitation or a training or a capacity that we learn in this simple and yet profound act of stopping and sitting still and centering ourselves. Independent of fear and grasping and aggression and delusion and all these things of the world. And until we find it in ourselves, we, are, we remain susceptible the madness of the world. And I don't have to elaborate on that phrase. H.L. Mencken, political commentator and essayist of, oh gosh, close to a hundred years ago, he wrote, the whole aim of politics is to keep the populace alarmed and hence clamorous to be led to safety by menacing it with an endless series of hobgoblins, all of them imaginary. So there's a way in which it's easy to get frightened in this world and caught up by these kinds of insecurities and fears. And at the same time, it's also possible to stop and come and feel ourselves on the earth, feel our breath, uh, settle our minds, open the heart, be present for this life from the place of awareness and understanding and steadiness and centeredness that is outside of the drama, outside of praise and blame and gain and loss. And this is really the invitation if we want to learn independence. So we sit and as we meditate, 
we learn to trust the space of awareness itself, of mindfulness, as the thoughts and tensions and the 10,000 joys and sorrows come and go. It becomes really apparent if you do a residential retreat, and there you sit, as people do most of the year there, you know, 100 people at a time, sitting and walking <coughs> as we did tonight, but all day long in silence for perhaps a week or 10 days. Your mind does everything. It has no pride at all. <laughs> do anything. You know? And you still sit there. And your body does all these things. As we sit in meditation, we could say that we seek this inner freedom. But as the heart opens, we realize that we already possess this freedom. That we are this freedom. And this inner freedom that we can find then manifests, it touches everything that we do when we come from this place of centeredness and stillness. But how does it touch it? How do they connect inner and outer? When in the course of human events goes the Declaration of Independence and it goes on, we hold these truths to be self-evident that all men are created equal that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable, in, unalienable rights that include life, liberty, and the, among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. So again, if we look outwardly, there's a kind of amazing vision in, that, in this document, and it's, it's quite beautiful. The democratic ideal that started um, from ancient Greece and Athos, Athens, the escape from outer tyranny, the escape from religious persecution, the escape from the kind of economic slavery and injustice. And I think part of the thing that's very difficult for us, I know it is for me at this time, but it seems a great cultural sadness, is because this vision isn't being so well fulfilled. And even the founding fathers you know, who were still slaveholders and oppressors of indigenous people. There is a kind of sadness at seeing that part, not to speak of the remaining injustice and racism and, you know, class problems and so forth. Langston Hughes, the, the great American poet, wrote, let America be America again, the America she never was kind of longing for what's possible, for what was put forth in that, um, that's kind of an outer reflection of this inner freedom. And I remember shortly after 9-11, when all the alarm bells politically and culturally <coughs> were, were, you know, set off, um, that I went to buy gas at a gas station that I tend to go to in another part of the part of uh, Marin, and I know these folks, and the gas station owner, w one of them was from Iran and the other was from Sicily, um, and uh, they were really upset. They said people were driving through and shouting these terrible things at them, you know, because they were Middle Easterners, so they thought somebody from Sicily was Middle Eastern, I guess, I don't know. You know, Americans get awfully confused sometimes. <laughs> but anyway, um, and... Uh, I went out and I bought them a huge flag 
I, you know, because I, I felt for them. They, they were people I wanted to protect, and I don't usually go out and buy big flags. <laughs> <It's not laughs> my, but I was like, what's the biggest flag you sell? You know? And hung it in the front of their station. And it felt like a really good use of the flag. And it was a beautiful thing. And they, they thanked me and helped me. So what is this? You know, let America be America again, the America she never was. What is democracy? What is the outer and inner meaning? We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men and women are created equal. And when, it's, when you read it, when it's written, you actually hear in it an echo of the teachings of the Buddha 2,400 years before, where people would come to the Buddha and ask about those who are high-born, the Brahmin caste, the warriors and the priests and the nobility, the Buddha would look back and say, one is noble not by birth or caste or race or creed or class. One is noble by heart. And this, is, this and this alone makes a human being noble. And each human being, O nobly born, has the potential for this wonderful expression of Buddha nature. And this and this alone is the real meaning of nobility, which was a radical teaching at that time. There's a beautiful story. Ananda, who was the attendant to the Buddha, was sent on a mission and on the way back, having visited someone in difficulty, passed by a well near a village and saw a young woman named Pakati, who was an untouchable, an outcast. And the untouchables in India are such, were, and in certain cases still may be, that, eat, that they can't drink from the same wells or touch a high caste person or even have their shadow pollute the well of high caste. So if you think about separate drinking fountains in the South, this is more extreme. And, and uh, Ananda asked her for a glass of cup of water to drink. And Pakati said, Oh, noble monk, I am too lowly born to give you water to drink. Do not ask any service of me, lest your holiness be contaminated or polluted, for I am of low caste. And Ananda replied, I ask not for caste, but for water. And the woman's heart leapt joyfully, and she gave to Ananda water to drink. It's the one thing a monk can ask for, and it is water. Otherwise, it has to be just offered. And Ananda thanked her and went away, but she followed at a distance. Having heard that Ananda was a disciple of the Buddha, she went to him and said, Help me, let me live in the place where your disciple Ananda dwells, that I may see him, for I have come to love Ananda. She fell in love with him. And the Blessed One understood her emotions and said, Pakati, your heart is full of love, but you do not understand your own sentiments. It is not Ananda that you love, but his kindness. Except then the kindness you have seen him practice toward you and practice it toward others. And even though you say you are born of low caste, you will be a model for the greatest of noblemen and noble women. Your glory will outshine all those around you. So what makes for freedom and independence? It's not a disconnection, a withdrawal from the world and isolation. 
That's not really freedom. That's based in some way on fear. What makes freedom? It's necessary, if we are to understand it, to discover that freedom exists in the midst of paradox, the paradox of both independence and interdependence. As Archbishop Tutu writes, Nobel laureate, in Africa, when you ask someone, how are you, the reply you get is always in the plural, even if you're speaking to one person. A man would say, we are well, or we are not well. He himself may be quite well, but his grandmother is not well, and so he is not well either. The solitary, isolated human being is really a fiction. When we look with a wise heart, we discover that there is not independence, but interdependence. When we shift from the small sense of ourself, the sense of separation, which is an illusion, we enter the stream of life itself. Wisdom says, I am nothing, said one of my teachers. Love says, I am everything. Between these two, my life flows. So I think we should rename it Interdependence Day. <laughs> because even if we wanted to be free from the British king at that time, and we'll just make ourselves we for the moment, even though I wasn't here and neither were my ancestors at that time, we needed French help, actually. And of course, then they needed our help with their revolution. But it wasn't just that. There were all these causes and conditions. There was the Magna Carta, where the English lords said, you know, we're not going to follow everything that the king says. We want our say in this, too. That preceded that by hundreds of years. And there was <coughs> all the discussion about uh, the rights of, uh, of humans and Hobbes and Locke in Europe. And, you know, and in each of us is the child of all of human history. You know, ancient Athens was what was brought to bear in that moment, and the, the notion of democracy itself, and Plato and Socrates. But in some way, we're also the inheritor of the interdependence and independence of Lao Tzu and the Taoists, and Mahavir and the Jains. Because every action is interdependent with the rest of the world, and we are held by this world. You think you're independent, but you are actually held all the time by the web of relationships, physical, emotional. You cannot be separated from life. And as your meditation deepens, you understand in some way both this great freedom with the changing circumstances of the world and this deep interconnectedness, this wonderful paradox. We are held by the world, and we are the world. We are the rainforest and the ozone. And when we weep, we weep seawater. And it's in our bodies. So we're held by gravity and the sun and the moon and ancient volcanoes and Mendel's gene pool and the chlorophyll that drinks the sunlight that makes our bodies work. Really, we're just moving from sunlight, <coughs> all that we need. 
control things on us. The body of the earth. Remember Chief Seattle, where he writes, What is man without the beasts? If all the beasts were gone, men would surely die from great loneliness of spirit. For whatever happens to the beasts also happens to man. This was a rather prescient view of our ecological predicament of the time. And a tearful one. My teacher, Ajahn Buddhadasa, used to have us sit outside and say, the forests are your lungs. They are. They're part of your body woven in a mutual garment of destiny. So what is freedom in this underdependence? The freedom to discover who we are, to act with a wise and free heart, to touch the truth of both independence and interdependence. Interdependence recognizes that as we become free or free from the conditioning and from fear and from greed and hatred and all those forces so that we can see with the heart and the eyes, then it's kind of obvious how to act. We act for us, which is our children, the earth, the forests, the people around us. Not because you're supposed to or you know it makes you a good person, but because it's us, it's family. We are endowed with certain unalienable rights, it says. And among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I reflect a little further with this. What is life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness? What does meditation and the Buddhist teachings have to say about this? If we understand when we get still that we're not separate, we're free but not separate. What is life? It is this shared web, the web of mutuality. Thomas Merton, wonderful mystic, said, in Louisville, at the corner of 4th and Walnut, in the center of the shopping district, I was suddenly overwhelmed with the realization that I loved all those people and that they were mine and I theirs, and that we could not be alien to one another even though we were total strangers. It was like waking from a dream of separateness and isolation, even that of the monastery, or some monastic holiness. This sense of liberation from an illusory difference was such a relief and joy, I laughed out loud on the street. I have the immense joy of being a member of a race in which the divine spark has become incarnate. There is no way of telling people that they are all walking around shining like the sun. <laughs> Endowed with life. And in the Buddhist language, it's called a precious human birth. And there's a tremendous gratitude every morning in the monastery one does, prayers of appreciation for coming into this amazing human incarnation, which has the perfect balance of pleasure and pain so you could wake up. It was too pleasant. That is, if you lived on the beach in Maui and <laughs> everything you wanted was served to you. 
you'd say, why should I bother meditating? <laughs> and I have to tell you, when I've taught retreats on Maui, <laughs> they haven't gone very well. <laughs> People will say, you know, it's sunset, I could have a really nice drink or smoke a little, whatever, go down to the beach, watch it. I mean, why should I meditate? Things are really good here, you know? <laughs> So it doesn't work so well in the heaven realms, they say. <laughs> doesn't also work in the realms of great suffering. I mean, because people have to be fed and clothed, and the trauma and fear makes it very difficult to remember freedom. But here we are in the human realm that is this balance of suffering and beauty, of joy and sorrow, of gain and loss. And it said, this is the perfect place to remember who you are. So we have appreciation for this mystery of human birth and gratitude for it, for all the things that we are given. With gratitude, I remember the people, animals, plants, insects, creatures of the sky and sea, air and water, fire and earth, all whose joyful exertion blesses my life every day. We are held by this life in this precious form that we have where we can awaken. Now when we notice the preciousness of life and feel our interdependence, what comes naturally as we get quiet and contemplative is a, a reverence for life. And the traditional teachings not to kill, it's not because you're not supposed to, but because it's us. There's a care for life. In the monastery, you don't even step on the little ants and the, you know, as you walk around in the forest. And there's this beautiful feeling that every form of life deserves respect. But not just in the little ways. My teacher, Gosananda, the Cambodian Gandhi and quite remarkable peacemaker, spent 15 years walking through the war zones of Cambodia with hundreds and hundreds of people following him, and people would throw grenades and shoot at them at times and so forth, just doing the prayers and chants of loving kindness over and over and over again. Hatred never ends by hatred, but by love alone is healed, he would say, and walked into the war zone. Mm. A reverence for life, kind of bravery because it's us, it's our life. To not kill, to not steal, just to care for the earth not to be piggy about it, basically, because it's <laughs> our family, you know. Um, a uh, farmer whose corn always took the first prize at the state fair had the habit of sharing his best <laughs> seed corn with all the farmers in the neighborhood. When asked why, he said, it's really a matter of self-interest. The wind picks up the pollen and carries it from field to field. So if my neighbors grow inferior corn, the cross-pollination brings down the quality of my own corn. Mm -hmm. And that's why I'm concerned that they plant only the very best. It's just this caring for one another because we share it. And when we get quiet, it's so natural to us. You know this. It's in the heart not to kill, not to steal, reverence for life, not to speak untruth, traditional teachings in Buddhism. 
John invited his mother over for dinner. During the meal, his mother couldn't help noticing how beautiful John's roommate was. She'd been suspicious of a relationship between John and his roommate. This only made her more curious. And watching them over the course of the evening, she started to wonder if there was more to John and the roommate than met the eye. Reading his mother's thoughts, John volunteered, I know what you must be thinking, Mom, but I assure you, Carrie and I are just roommates. About a week later, Carrie came to John and said, ever since your mother came to dinner, I've been unable to find the beautiful silver soup ladle. You don't suppose she did anything with it, do you? I doubt it, but I'll just email her in case. So he wrote and said, Dear Mother, I'm not saying that you did take the soup ladle or not, or, but for some strange reason, it's been missing ever since you were here. Later in the day, John received an email from his mother which read, Dear Son, I'm not saying that you do sleep with Carrie, I'm not saying that you don't, but the fact remains that if she was sleeping in her own bed, she would have found the soup ladle by now. <laughs> Love, Mom. And this is entitled, Don't Lie to Your Mother. <laughs> this is called Sila in Buddhist teachings or virtue, and it's not that one is supposed to be virtuous. It's rather that as the mind quiets and the heart opens, there's no other way to be but to care for one another. It's us. That's life. And then what's liberty? Here's a poem from Billy Collins. If ever there were a day so perfect, so uplifted by a warm intermittent breeze, that it made you want to throw open all the windows in the house and unlatch the door to the canary's cage, indeed rip the little door from its jam. A day when the cool brick paths and the garden bursting with peonies seemed so etched in sunlight that you felt like taking a hammer to the glass paperweight on the living room end table, releasing the inhabitants from their snow-covered cottage <laughs> so they could walk out holding hands and squinting into this larger dome blue and white, well, today is just that kind of day. <laughs> so much fun. And while he's saying we all know what is liberty, that freedom is possible for us. Freedom is possible in the midst of praise and blame and gain and loss and fame and disrepute and pleasure and pain, the eight worldly winds. As Suzuki Roshi says, when we realize the fact that everything changes and find our composure in it, there we find ourselves in nirvana. And nirvana here means freedom, peace, the joy of the heart that is not dependent on the changing conditions. It's the unconditioned. And this liberty is called prajna or panya, my dear and beloved friend Salam, who died a year ago uh, today, um, who spent six or seven years in Israeli prisons. He was a Palestinian peacemaker and an activist and so forth, and came out of all of that um, saying simply, I've learned not to hate, not to hate anyone, that that will not bring freedom or justice for any side. You can't have one side win and the other one lose. 
one side loses, everyone loses. As the Buddha said, in war, there are no victors. Or Nelson Mandela, who walked out of prison after 27 years on Robben Island with such dignity and magnanimity and graciousness and love, uh, invited his guards to sit in the front row for his presidential inauguration <laughs> as respected guests. He did that, you know, a little turnabout there, you might say. <laughs> and what this means is that in us, as we, and when we come to meditate, we remember this. In us, we step out of the, what Alan Watts called the skin encapsulated ego and return to the great heart of compassion and freedom that is our original goodness, our own true nature. Be humble, for you are made of mud, say the Serbians. Be noble, for you are made of stars. And we carry both of these in ourselves. And liberty is to recognize both you know, the limitations of human incarnation and the timeless spirit within us. As Viktor Frankl said, we who lived through the concentration camps can remember those who walked through the huts, comforting others, giving away their last piece of bread. They might have been few in number, but their very existence testifies to the last of human freedoms, the freedom to choose your spirit in any given circumstance. And this is your freedom. And it's the freedom that you are called upon to discover, to remember in yourself, in meditation, in any way that you can. And more than that, it's the freedom that you are called upon now to bring to a frightened world. Because when people forget this, mm -hmm. they do all kinds of terrible things when they don't remember that what Nelson Mandela found and what you can find. Just reflect for a moment. What is the freedom that you know in yourself? And what would it mean to bring that spirit to those around you and to the world that is, in many cases, so frightened? Life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness is a kind of Buddhist list that you do go. They say in Zen there are only two things. You sit and you sweep the garden, and it doesn't matter how big the garden is. You sit and quiet the mind and come back to a place of inner centeredness and freedom, understanding, tender heart. And then you get up from the sitting and you tend the garden, which is, of course, the garden of the world. It doesn't matter how big the garden is. So the pursuit of happiness, here we sit and we become mindful, what is this happiness? I was at a big conference, a Mind Life conference in Washington, D.C. a year and a half ago or something like that, on a panel with the Dalai Lama and a number of very well-known neuroscientists and so forth, talking about all the scientific research about the brain and possibilities of neuroplasticity and human transformation that ma neuroscience is now really um, uh, it's really um, 
measuring and showing in a quite clear way that, that the things that we've known about in meditation now can be accurately, um, scientifically measured. Anyway, so here's the Dalai Lama, and at some point, a TV crew comes up to him. Um, you know, there's the camera and the microphone and his face, whatever station it was. Could we speak to you for a few moments, Your Holiness? Yes. Um, you had this wonderful book on the New York Times bestseller list for almost two years, The Art of Happiness, and even in spite of all the you know, difficulties that the Tibetan people face and so forth, you are known as a truly happy person. Could you tell our listeners, please, about um, one of the happiest or the happiest moment of your life? <laughs> you know, I'm sure this person was thinking of questions they could ask the Dalai Lama. And the Dalai Lama took a breath and smiled and said, mm, I think now. <laughs> what is the pursuit of happiness? Happiness is really different than pleasure. Pleasure and pain, gain and loss, praise and blame, they keep changing. Anybody not have that experience? Please raise your hand. Just want to meet somebody like that. <laughs> So it's not about that. And here's Alex de Tocqueville. In America, he wrote 150 years ago, I saw the freest and most enlightened of men placed in the happiest circumstance which the world affords, and yet it seemed to me as if a cloud habitually hung on their brow, for they were forever brooding over those things that they do not yet possess. <laughs> So what does it mean, the pursuit of happiness? There are the outer things that one can get. But one of the most wonderful trainings that I found in, uh, in the Buddhist monastery was the going out in the morning with an alms bowl for food. And sometimes you'd get food you like, and sometimes you'd get food you didn't like, and sometimes you'd get a lot, and sometimes you wouldn't get very much. Um, and in this training, you would just eat what you were given. And I watched my mind, oh, you know, I'd be out in this remote village and walking along. Someone would come up and bow to me and put a mango in my bowl, and I'd get all excited. Wow, <laughs> I haven't had a mango for months. You know, I want to say thank you, you know. Uh, so, But you can't. You have to keep yourself silent and kind of look meditative. <laughs> and, and so forth. And then I get back and I think about it, you know, and these were sometimes very poor people who were giving of the little bit of food they had. Um, and what did, by what right did I, somebody who had, you know, the, maybe their annual income, so to speak, was $500 for a year. <coughs> I, who came from a kind of middle-class background and had so much wealth by comparison, to take of their food. But they so loved giving it. It was as if they were saying, we so deeply value what you represent, which is this freedom and compassion of the Buddha in our society, that we want to give you of the little that we have, that that might stay alive in our community. And you can't say thank you. All you can do is take it and say, all right, when I go back, I'll eat it and use it in a way that honors this gift. But the freedom was not the freedom to have, you know, 
would you like white or red wine with your meal? <laughs> it just wasn't that kind of freedom, you know? Would you like some um, ground pepper on the uh, <laughs> alms bowl? <laughs> and the, the kind of words that were used were pasadi, samadhi, piti. And in Thailand, there's a beautiful word called kwampajai, which means, um, the best translation, is enoughness or contentment. Generosity, stillness, joy, inner contentment. The happiness for no reason. The happiness of being rather than of getting something. And that's the happiness that the Dalai Lama spoke about. A kind of graciousness. The possibility of the heart being joyful and free and expressing that in the world. So again... on the Dhammapada, on the early Buddhist text. It says, live in joy, in love, even among those who hate. Live in joy, <coughs> in health, even among the afflicted. Live in joy, in peace, even among the troubled. Look within, be still, free from fear and attachment. Know the sweet joy of the way. And this is kind of an amazing invitation. It says, in this world that is both troubled and amazingly beautiful, that is gifted and yet pained, all of the things that we know that make up the duality of this world, there is a kind of grace and beauty and graciousness that is also possible for us, even as we tend this world. And maybe even it's the best way to tend the world. I think so, don't you? So Deborah Chamberlain-Taylor, who teaches here, a colleague and friend, tells the story of leading a group, um, a meditation and training group for women for a couple of years. And in the group um, was a woman who was born in the ghetto, very poor. Her mother was addicted to drugs. She was out on the streets when she was really little, beaten, abused, bad stepfathers, all kinds of terrible suffering that she struggled through. Got pregnant early, had a couple kids. You know, life was really, really difficult. Um, and then somehow, through her own kind of inner courage, um, she managed to educate herself, and get herself through school. And she became a, a radical political person who was trying to change the circumstances in her neighborhood, in her kids' schools, and in the work that she chose, um, doing all these things. And then she began to do inner work as well in herself. And Deborah said at the end of the group, this woman said, you know, I've done a lot of radical things in my life. I came from really tough circumstances, and I overcame them, and I learned to be an activist, and I learned to do this and that, and now I'm going to do the most radical thing of all. I'm going to, I'm going to let myself be happy. How's that? That's a really radical thing to do. And it doesn't mean that happiness 
doesn't have tears when you lose someone you love or tears for the sorrows or the injustice of the world. But it means somehow that there's a fundamental goodness and love that we touch and know and embody and live from. And it's what we need to honor this life and it's really what the world needs from us. Rachel Carlson says if a child's world is fresh, new, beautiful, full of wonder and excitement, and if I had influence over the good fairy who is supposed to preside over the birth of all children, I should ask that her gift to each child in the world would be a sense of wonder so indestructible it would last throughout their life. This kind of mystery. I remember it because when I was eight years old, I was hospitalized for polio. And um, I remember how scared it was. I, I was paralyzed and I couldn't move. Um, at least I thought, they thought it was polio at the time. Um, and I was on this hospital ward and it was, you know, both scary to not move and then they would do these spinal taps with what seemed like horse needles and no, you know, no pain killer of any kind and incredibly painful. And then, you know, all these doctors and strange people coming and poking and looking at me and things like that. And I remember looking outside of my window and there's this little patch of grass, you know, and one day I saw a couple of kids playing out there. Mm. And all I wanted was just to go and be a kid playing outside on the grass. And somehow after a month or so, I got my mobility back. I don't know what it was and they never could quite explain it. And I got out of the hospital and I got home. And when I could move again, I ran down to the park at the corner. I got one of those little balsa wood airplanes. And I was just turning cartwheels and lying on the grass. And I was just so happy to walk on the grass, to move my body, to be alive. It's so mysterious and so uh, deep a gift to come into human incarnation. And so difficult. The Buddha says, yes, there's suffering. But there also is this beautiful spirit, oh nobly born. There is freedom, <coughs> spaciousness, and a fundamental happiness that you also can touch. Let yourself sit for a moment. You don't have to meditate. You don't have to change your posture. But just reflect for a moment on moments of deep satisfaction and happiness and what those are like deepest satisfaction. And sometimes, as you reflect, they'll come from just being. Just being yourself, free and present, open. Maybe sometimes the deepest satisfaction and happiness comes because you can give yourself to life and to the world. Your love, your being. <coughs> Relax as you sit. The Dalai Lama's morning vows every day. May I be a guard for those who are protectorless, a guide for those who journey on the road. May I be a boat 
a raft, a bridge for those to cross the water, an isle for those who yearn for landfall, a lamp for those in darkness, and for those who need a resting place, a bed. May I be the wishing jewel that bathes with plenty, the word of power. May I be the medicine for all those who need healing and the tree of miracle. And though beings are boundless, may I be their sustenance and nourishment for beings multitude enduring like the great earth and the sky itself until together we all pass beyond the bounds of sorrow. Quite an amazing vow to take every morning. <laughs> and yet it seems, he seems like a happy guy. <laughs> you know. In some way our happiness comes when we remember who we are, when we quiet the mind, open the heart, come back to our inner freedom. And in some way our happiness comes from Donna. From out of this contentment comes a connectedness and a love of bringing ourselves to this earth, of tending and caring, because not only are we independent, but we are interdependent, and both are true. You breathe in and quiet the mind, open the heart, touch the place of wisdom and mystery. And you breathe out and embody the gifts of this life, because that's what we're here to do. It's what makes us happy. And bring forth the spirit of freedom and compassion and understanding and creativity to the world. Wendell Berry, mad farmer and great poet, writes, the cloud is free only to go with the wind. The rain is free only in its falling. The water is free only in its gathering together, in its downward courses, in its rising into the air. In the law, and by this he means the Dharma, the way, is rest. If you love the law, if you enter singing into it as water in its descent, this is called the law or the way that marries all I feel really grateful that we have uh, the practices of meditation, of mindfulness, the training of loving kindness and compassion, especially in these kind of times. Um, I'm grateful to be able to talk about it with you and sit together. So let's meditate for a
as you sit, let yourself sense the spirit of freedom, of wisdom, understanding that you can bring to this troubled world and all the things that you touch. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.